Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're looking this morning at verses 19 to 24 as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Our Advent series will begin next week, and so we'll pick back up the Sermon on the Mount following that in the new year. But we're in verses 19 to 24 this morning. Now, if you're really paying attention, you might say, well, pastor, you skipped verses 16 to 18 on fasting. And I did so because I didn't know if it was appropriate to preach on fasting the week after we gorged ourselves. I'm just kidding. No, actually, I did preach on these verses back If you remember several weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 to 18, this whole section about giving and praying and fasting, so you can go back and listen to that if you would like. And then we looked at the Lord's Prayer for three weeks, so now we're here in verses 19 to 24. Let's pray as we begin. Father, that is our confession this morning. You are our greatest treasure the wellspring of our souls. So we ask now that you would come and satisfy us by your word. We pray that just as the rain has fallen on us this morning, that sweet drops of mercy would fall on this next hour as we look together at your word, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So may your word have its work in us, I pray you would help me in my weakness. I pray you would do your will this morning in our hearts, shaping us, fashioning us, conforming us into the image of Christ. Would you build up your church? Would you strengthen faith? Would you convict of sin? Would you magnify the glory of your name? We pray in Christ's name, amen. I do hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, celebrating with friends and family, eating lots of good Thanksgiving food, and and considering all that you have to be grateful for this Thanksgiving season. But I was thinking this week, I do that sometimes, I was thinking this week, and I I was thinking that I, I do find it just a little bit strange, a little bit ironic, that after the day after each year that we specifically set aside in this country to um, express our gratefulness and our thankfulness for all the many things that we have, um, cultivating this attitude of gratitude, counting our blessings, I do find it rather ironic, rather strange that the day after that, after this day of thanksgiving, all that we have to be thankful for, the very next day, in fact, depending on when stores open, not even 24 hours later, the very next day is also a day each year we set aside in our society to say, I want more. (laughs) Give me more, right? Anybody else find that a little bit ironic? We call it Black Friday. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that Black Friday meant that it was because it was this dark day where everybody was really greedy for more. I think I had seen one too many videos of, you know, people being trampled in stores or two middle-aged mothers punching each other and fighting over a toy after they just 24 hours earlier sat around the table. What do you have to be thankful for? And so I thought that's why we called it Black Friday. In fact, it wasn't until later I found out that the reason we call it Black Friday is because it's a day 
because of all the holiday shopping that many businesses move fiscally from operating in the red or in the negative to the black or to the positive. But isn't that just a little bit ironic? That the day after celebrating how much we have to be thankful for, the very next day is the day known for wanting more. Now, that isn't to shame you if you got a good Black Friday deal. Good for you. My point is simply that I I think that does reveal, beloved, something about the human heart. It reveals something inside us where there is always this craving, this aching for more, more stuff, more money, more possessions, more things, that there is within the human heart this insatiable desire, this temptation to accumulate more and more in order to be happy, in order to be content, find contentment in life. And that's the issue that Jesus turns now to address here in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants to address for his disciples how they and how we are to think and to feel about money, about possessions, and about this universal problem of materialism. That's what he's going to address now here in the Sermon on the Mount. But even more than that, what Jesus is addressing here in this section is our hearts. Addressing our hearts as he has been throughout this sermon. In fact, notice there in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning that there is a fundamental connection, beloved, between our hearts and how we think about, how we feel about, how we handle our money. There's a connection between our hearts and how we think about money. The two are intimately tied together. Now, there's a problem with preaching on money. You know what the problem is? It's not unlike the problem with preaching on prayer. I told you several weeks ago, we just spent three weeks looking at prayer several weeks ago, that one of the problems with preaching on prayer is, well, depending on how you do it, you can make people walk away just feeling very guilty, very burdened, because their prayer life stinks, and they just feel discouraged and defeated. Well, there's also a problem with preaching on money, although it's kind of the opposite problem. If the problem with preaching on prayer is people leave feeling guilty because they know, you know, I don't pray like I should, my prayer life stinks, then the problem with preaching on money is that most people often think this topic is irrelevant for them. It's irrelevant because, you know, they don't think they struggle with greed. They don't think they struggle with materialism. And here's why I think that is. The reason is because all of us can point to someone else who has more money or possessions than we do. And so we say, well, I don't have a problem with materialism. I mean, they have more things than I do, and therefore, it's not a struggle for me. But beloved, what Jesus wants us to see this morning is that this is a danger for all of his disciples. It's a danger for all of us, and this morning, he's going to show us how to deal with this problem. And the answer isn't Stop pursuing treasure. The answer is a matter of where your treasure is. Let's see it together. Matthew chapter 6. If you have your place there, would you please stand with me out of honor for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 19. The Apostle Matthew writes, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. It'd probably be helpful if we just take a moment to just reorient ourselves to where we are now here in the Sermon on the Mount. I told you that the main point of this sermon, really the thesis statement or the thesis idea of the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of radical kingdom lifestyle that's necessary for his kingdom citizens. Jesus here is showing us what life inside the kingdom of heaven looks like. What it's going to look like if you're going to follow Jesus. What it's going to look like if you are his disciple. If you're truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you are, if God has saved you by his grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, if that's you, then this is the kind of radical righteousness that's going to characterize your life. This will be who you are. Don't forget the thesis statement or the thesis verse there, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That unless you have an altogether different kind of righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And so, In chapter 5, if you notice, verses 21 to 48, he gave us six examples of this as it relates to anger, lust, marriage, truth-telling, retaliating, loving your enemies. Six examples of this radical righteousness that isn't something merely external, but is a matter internally of our hearts. It flows from a heart changed by the grace of God. And then if you notice in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, Jesus describes the inward motivations of the heart that must also exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He gave us, notice chapter 6, verse 1, this warning, warning us of practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by others, doing religious things in order to be seen. And there he gave us three examples of this, of Giving, notice, praying, fasting, telling us to do these things in secret in order to be seen only by God and not as a show in order to be seen by others. So he's motivating us to do these out of a heart of love and devotion for God. But now, beginning in verse 19 and going all the way through verse 24, Jesus is going to address the motivations of our hearts as it relates to money as it relates to our possessions and the danger of materialism. Now, I keep saying that word, materialism. What is that? What is materialism? Materialism means treasuring earthly things more than God himself. Treasuring earthly things more than God himself. And it's a form of idolatry. You could also call it greed. You could also call it, the Bible calls it covetousness. And folks, it's a serious problem. Listen to this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, materialistic, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If that's what characterizes your life, you will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or look at this, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death, Paul says. Kill it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is serious business. 
In fact, did you know that Jesus spoke about the topic of money more than he did any other topic in the Bible? He spoke about money more often than he did even heaven or hell. Author Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, says that approximately 15%, 15% of everything Jesus said in the Gospels relates to money or to possessions, which is more than his teaching on heaven and hell combined. So this is an important issue. This is not a peripheral matter. And think about this. Jesus is speaking these words to a group of people here who I'm almost 100% sure have experienced less of the pleasures and treasures than everyone else in this room. The crowd he's speaking to here has experienced less of the treasures and pleasures of everybody else in this room, and yet he thought they needed a word about materialism. What about us? So this isn't a problem only for rich people. This is a problem for all of us. And Jesus says, it isn't so much a matter of the size of your bank account. It's a matter of your heart. Where is your heart? That's the most important thing in the Christian life because everything else flows from your heart. And if your heart is oriented toward God and His kingdom and His glory, if you're storing up treasures in the right place, then your money and your stuff, it's going to follow. Everything else will fall into place. So then, what does Jesus, how does Jesus deal with this very real problem for all of us of materialism? Here's how. Notice, by giving us first two clear commands. You see it there, verses 19 through 21. Second, by giving us two metaphors or two illustrations. You see it there in verses 22 and 23 about our eyes. The good eye, the bad eye. And then third, by contrasting for us two masters. Verse 24, God and money. That's how he's going to deal with this problem of materialism. And that's the outline Jesus follows in his sermon, so that's the outline I'm going to follow as well. First, two commands about treasure, verses 19 to 21. Second, two metaphors about eyes, verses 22 and 23. And then third, two masters to serve, verse 24. With spoiler alert, I'm only going to get through point one today. I'm only going to get through point one. You're going to have to come back after Advent to hear part two. Okay? So, heading number one, first heading, two commands about treasure. Look there, we see it, verses 19 through 21. Now notice, verses 19 and 20, there are two commands. One negative, don't do this. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So one negative command and one positive command. You see it there, verse 20. Rather, you are to do this, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Those are the two commands. And then each of these two commands is supported with two reasons why you should obey these two commands. You see them? The two reasons are decay and depravity. Try to just alliterate them for you there. Decay and, and depravity. Two reasons. And then, verse 21, Jesus gives the principle coming from, flowing from these two commands. You see it there, verse 21. For, or since, because, here's his principle, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he's doing here, here's what he's doing. 
is he's contrasting the temporary, short-lived nature of earthly treasures with the permanent, enduring nature of heavenly treasures. And what he wants to show you is that heavenly treasure is vastly superior to earthly treasure. So that's the structure under this first heading. Now, before we look closely at those two commands, let me just make two clarifying comments that many people, I think, get tripped up here over this issue of money, okay? Two clarifying comments before we look at these commands. Number one, neither Jesus nor the rest of the Bible has a negative view of money. Jesus does not have, the Bible does not have a jaded view, a negative view of money. You often hear people quote, really misquote, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and they'll say something like, money is the root of all evil. No, that's not what Paul says. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So it isn't money that is the problem, it's the love of money. Loving money will destroy your soul, but money can be used for all sorts of good things. So no, money isn't inherently bad, it isn't inherently evil, it isn't about wealth per se, it's about why we obtain it, what we think about it, or how we what place it occupies in our hearts, and what we do with it, how we use it. So, neither Jesus nor the rest of the Bible has a negative view of money. Here's the second clarifying comment. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to pursue treasure. He's not saying don't pursue treasure. Nor is he saying it's wrong to pursue your own self-interests. You know, a lot of people come to verse 19 and they'll say, See, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't lay up treasure for yourselves. Don't pursue treasure for yourself. But that isn't what Jesus says. Because in the very next phrase, notice, he tells us to lay up treasures for ourselves. So, just make sure you don't do it on earth, but you do it in heaven. He wants you to pursue treasure for yourself. What's he appealing to? He's appealing to our own self-interests, isn't he? He's appealing to our own interests, and the Bible does this all the time. It appeals to our joy. It appeals to our satisfaction. It appeals to our pleasure. That's what he's doing here. For example, notice, you don't even have to leave the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. Look back, chapter 5, verse 11. Telling these persecuted Christians why they're blessed. Chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. So what is he appealing to in order to enable them to rejoice and be glad? He's appealing in the midst of their persecution to their treasure in heaven. Eternal reward. He's appealing to their own self-interest. You should pursue treasure for yourself. Again, Randy Alcorn in his book writes this. Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus commands us to do what is in our own best interest? Wouldn't that be selfish? No, he says. God expects and commands us to act out of enlightened self-interest. He wants us to live to his glory, but what is to his glory is always to our good. As John Piper puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He wants you to pursue your own self-interest. So then, he wants you to store up treasure for yourself. I want you to store up treasure for yourself, but I'm just telling you, 
to stop storing it in the wrong place. You need to be storing it up in heaven. Which brings us back to these two commands. Let's spend some time looking at these. First, the negative command. Look there, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus is saying, don't seek to accumulate possessions for yourself. Don't try to stockpile, don't try to keep adding to your material wealth. Do not lay up, some translations say store up, literally it's treasure up. Do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now what are treasures? Treasures are money and everything money can buy. So what is Jesus condemning here? Here's here's what he's condemning. He's condemning using our earthly wealth, our treasures, our money, our possessions for exclusively earthly ends. That's what he's forbidding. So do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Now, people want to qualify this statement all the time. And they want to say, well... You need stability. You need a plan for the future. You need to be like the ant in Proverbs, right, who stores it up. You need a plan ahead. I get that. I understand the Bible balances that out. But listen, Jesus doesn't qualify it here. Do not store up possessions on the earth. And then, look at verse 19, he gives two reasons why you shouldn't do that. Reason number one, decay. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, here's the first reason, where moth and rust destroy. So why should you not lay up treasures on the earth? Because, Jesus says, naturally, they're going to break down. They're going to get old. They're going to wear out. They're going to get damaged. They're going to get destroyed. They're going to depreciate in value. I remember when I was 16, I had saved and saved in order to get this new truck. It was new to me. And I had worked hard to save. I was proud of this truck. And I think I had the truck, if my memory serves me correctly, a week, maybe two weeks, And guess what happened? I wrecked it. I totaled it. Right? Or young young people, children, this happens. Oftentimes you get a new toy, you get a new gadget for Christmas, right? And, And what happens? Five minutes later, an hour later, it falls apart. It breaks. This kind of thing happens all the time. You you drive a new car, brand new car off the lot, and immediately what happens? It begins to depreciate in value, and then you get it into the garage at home and you ding the door. It happens all the time. Where moth and rust destroy. Look at verse 19. Moths eat it. Actually, this is gross. The moths lay their larvae, larvae, larvae in the fabric and they eat it. Or, he says, rust destroys it. So moths eat it. Rust has this corrosive effect that eats away at it as well. Now, interestingly, that word rust there, it literally just means to eat away. So this this could refer to rust, or this actually could refer to worms. It could refer to rats. It could refer to other vermin as well. Eating away your stuff. Decay. That's the first reason. Look at the second reason, depravity. Verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So if it isn't enough that 
your new car depreciates as soon as you drive it off the lot, you're also in danger of somebody taking your keys and stealing it. As one commentator writes, today we have mothballs, safety deposit boxes, and burglar alarms, but that doesn't mean our treasure is safe. So, listen, Jesus is saying, you can wisely try to protect your money. You can wisely try to protect your assets. You can invest in all the right stocks. You, you can save for retirement. You can do all of those kinds of things. You can invest and save your money. But either it's going to be taken away from you, it could be stolen from you, or you may not even live long enough to enjoy it. And it's gone. You can save it all, and yet it's going to burn. What's the old saying? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. What's Jesus' point? If you invest in earthly treasures, they aren't going to last. Your investments are always subject to decay. They're always subject to losing it all. Yet, beloved, isn't this so often what preoccupies us? What preoccupies our thoughts, what preoccupies our energies, what preoccupies our money and our spending? But Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So then, if that's not what we're to do, then what's the alternative? If, if not on the earth, then where? Look at the positive command. Verse 20. Don't lay them up on the earth, but lay them up, store them up for yourselves, for, for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So where are we to accumulate them? Where are we to amass them? In heaven. And notice, if you do, they're safe and secure forever. So notice two reasons he gives that parallel verse 19. Maws and rust cannot eat them. Thieves cannot steal them. They are protected, they do not depreciate, they are not subject to decay. Christian, do you realize that there is an unseen, eternal reality that is awaiting you in heaven? And that you, by how you live your life now, right here on the earth, can be storing up can be accumulating treasure for you to enjoy in heaven forever. This life is not all there is. What are you struggling with right now? This life is not everything. This life is not all that there is. The believer is awaiting... Time and eternity in another realm where God is and He reigns in heaven. One day it will be here on the earth. And everything there is without imperfection. It is without decay. It is without defect. It is perfect forever. Just glory. 1 Peter 1.4 says, our eternal inheritance, what we're going to receive in heaven, this heavenly reward, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's amazing. It will never depreciate in value. It's only going to appreciate. That's incredible. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying two things. First, he's saying... It would be the height of idiocy to invest in earthly things rather than in heavenly things. 
treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. Only an idiot would do that. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. Why? Because it isn't going to last. You can't take it with you. But you can actually store up treasures that will last you for eternity. So heavenly riches are vastly superior. In other words, Jesus is asking us here, are you going to be smart or dumb? Are you going to be wise or are you going to be foolish? You know, financial planners tell us that when it comes to money, don't think three years from now. Don't think 30 years from now. Or plan for 30 years from now. Jesus is saying, don't, don't plan for three months from now. Don't plan for three years from now. Don't plan for 30 years from now. Plan for 30 billion years from now. That's a wise investment. That's a smart investment. That's the first thing he's saying. Here's the second thing he's saying. Now listen very carefully. Please do not misunderstand me. Listen. There is a link between what you do on earth and your everlasting enjoyment of heaven. There is a link between what you do on the earth and your everlasting enjoyment of heaven. There is a link between how you live your life, how you give, how you serve, how you invest, how you spend, what you live for, what you pursue, and the level, the degree, the amount of reward you're going to have in heaven. Again, look there, verse 20. Store up, lay up, accumulate treasures in heaven. So you can't take it with you, but you can store it up to enjoy later in heaven. Again, Randy Alcorn, he calls this the treasure principle. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. Or listen to what John Stott says on this passage. He says, surely we may say that to lay up treasures in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effects last for eternity. Jesus is addressing disciples who have already received the salvation of God. So he's not talking about eternal reward in that sense. The, the salvation that everybody's going to receive. These are temporal activities with eternal consequences. There is a link between how you live your life and how you will enjoy heaven. So listen, you can be the poorest member of Second Baptist Church and make massive investments in the kingdom of heaven that will be waiting for you there when you get there, and they will never depreciate in value for all of eternity. And on the same token, you can be one of the wealthiest members of Second Baptist Church. You can pour all of your money into earthly treasures, and you can arrive in heaven only to realize there is a loss of reward for how you've lived your life. There's a link. So verse 20 Store up treasures in heaven. So the question becomes, okay, how do you do that? How do I store up treasures in heaven? And does the New Testament teach that there are varying degrees of reward in heaven? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes. There are varying degrees of of reward in heaven and the enjoyment of those rewards. So that's where I want to spend the remainder of our next few moments together. And the reason I want to focus on this is because not only is this a topic I think that's, that's missed by many Christians, it isn't talked about very much, this idea of gaining heavenly reward, but it's also a revolutionary idea that if, if you see it, and if you embrace it, it will change your life. 
it will have a radically transforming effect on the way that you live, the way that you serve, the way that you invest, the way you spend your life. So how do you store up treasures in heaven? First of all, let me say that it is massively important to understand that our obedience to God, our service to God, is never the ground or the basis of your acceptance with God. No, our obedience to God isn't the basis of your acceptance with God in heaven. It isn't what saves you. It isn't what justifies you in the sight of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Or verse 28, We hold that no one is justified, or that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So none of your works, none of your obedience to God is the ground of your justification or your acceptance with God. The Bible's clear. We stand before God in heaven, accepted, loved, forgiven, justified on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. But the Bible also teaches that while our works do not save us, we are saved by grace and grace alone, and zero works are required to add to that grace, but then out of That salvation, out of thankfulness and gratitude for God, for what he's done, we get to walk in the good works he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. After stating we've been saved by grace through faith alone, it's not our own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work. Look what Paul says. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he gives us the free gift of salvation and then empowers us by his grace to walk in good works toward him. And then miracle of all miracles, he rewards us for it. (laughs) It's just grace upon grace upon grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, For by the grace of God I am what I am. I worked harder, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So what God rewards is the fruit of his own grace at work in us. That's amazing. So how do we lay up treasures in heaven? Let me give you a few examples. Number one, being faithful in persecution. Being faithful in persecution. We don't even have to leave the Sermon on the Mount. Look back chapter 5 again, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So those, Jesus says, who faithfully endure persecution in this life, are going to have greater reward in heaven. And remember, I told you, this persecution isn't isn't just being slaughtered for the name of Christ, it's even being slandered for the name of Christ. Every time you take a stand for the name of Jesus and your faith is maligned, you're mocked, you are storing up treasure in heaven. So being faithful in persecution, you're going to be rewarded for it. Second, Another way, doing your giving, praying, and fasting, your religious activity, in secret. Not to be seen. Look there, chapter 6, verse 1. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have, what? No reward from your Father who is in heaven. He is your Father, but you will have no reward. If you do it in order to be seen by others, no reward. In fact, he says, look at verse 2, those who do it to be seen by others have received their reward in full. Meaning nothing else 
is going to be given to you. Nothing else is going to be owed to you on judgment day for your good works. You did it all for the applause of men, and that's all you get. So do your religious activity in secret. If you do it in secret, so that God and God alone sees, look at verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4. Your Father who sees in secret, what? Will reward you. Again, he says it in verse 6 about prayer. He says it in verse 18 about fasting. In fact, get this. In verses 1 to 21 of chapter 6, that word reward or that word treasure is used 10 times just here in this section. So every time, beloved, you pray, every time you give, every time you fast in secret in order to be seen only by God, you are storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. How else do you receive eternal rewards? What are some other ways? Here's another way. Giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Look at this. And whoever gives one of the least of these, one of the little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You don't have time to read it. Matthew 19, verse 29. Those who leave families and possessions for the sake of following Christ will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. 2 John chapter 8. Christians receive eternal rewards for staying true to Christian doctrine. Just staying true to the Bible, John says. I mean, we could do this all day. I go to, let me show you a couple more. Christians, here you go, Christians who just get up and go to work faithfully every day for the glory of God will be rewarded in heaven. Colossians chapter 3, look at this, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And remember, he's speaking here to slaves. Jobs nobody wants. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. How about this one? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Christians who have a lot of money, really everybody in this room, according to the world standards, and use their money to serve others, do good works, are storing up treasures in heaven. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Look what Paul says here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So you got money in this life? Don't be proud. Don't be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't put your hope in riches, earthly treasures, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's given it to you. He wants you to enjoy it. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So using your money on earth, not for earthly ends, but notice here for storing up eternal reward, eternal treasure in heaven. So beloved, storing up treasure in heaven really then is just about wholehearted, faith-filled devotion to the Christian life. Living faithfully as a Christian. And by doing that, you're storing up rewards. Now, let me just show you one more place where we see this idea of varying degrees of rewards in heaven. And then let me give you one objection to this. Answer one objection, and then I'm going to close with that principle he gives in verse 21, and I'll be done. Pastor, it sounds like you're saying that some Christians will have more rewards in heaven than others and that their enjoyment of their rewards in heaven will be greater than others. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There will be varying degrees of reward in heaven depending on how you live your life. There is a link between how you live now and your eternal enjoyment of heaven. Okay, one place this is very clear as well, I think. Turn with me if you would. I want you to see it, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
We could just as well look at Luke 19, the servant who, because of his investment, is granted to rule over ten cities, while the other servant is ruling over five cities. We could just as easily go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. We could just as well go to those. But I think you see it here clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this idea of varying degrees of reward in heaven and that based on how you live your life, you can suffer loss in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul, he's describing here how some who labor faithfully in ministry will have more reward in heaven. So, yes, they'll be saved. Some will be saved, but they're gonna, some will also suffer loss. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. So, Paul's talking about planting churches here. According to God's word, that's what he means, a skilled master builder. And others are now building on that foundation. Let each one, he says, take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, he's saying, I laid the foundation of Jesus Christ. Don't you dare try to build another foundation. Don't you try to lay another foundation. Build on Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, so he's using an illustration here to say there's good ways to build, there's bad ways to build, good materials that'll last, right, gold, precious stones, silver, right, which would be like preaching of the word. Church discipline, meaningful membership. These are ways to build on the church, the church the way you should. Or there's bad materials that aren't going to last, wood, hay, straw. You can just imagine what that is, how people try to build churches. They're not going to last. So build what's going to last. Look at verse 13. But each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's judgment day, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 14, if, it, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? Reward. So there's the heavenly reward idea. But here's the key verse. Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. What's Paul's point? Rewards in Scripture often are used to describe just salvation, the eternal inheritance we all get. But here Paul is using it differently. There is a loss of reward even though you are saved. You can be saved and yet suffer the loss of reward. Which leads to that objection I told you about. Pastor, how can you have some people getting lots of reward in heaven and some getting few rewards in heaven and everybody being happy in heaven? If some get more, some get less, how, how, is, how, how can we... Be happy with that. I mean, won't everybody's joy in heaven be full? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes, but some will have more than others. So then how can everybody be happy if some get more than others? Do you see the objection? And what I'm tempted to do is just go and tell you to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this. The sermon he preached on Romans chapter 2, verse 10, I'll post it later in an excerpt from it, where he describes this idea of differing rewards in heaven, some enjoying heaven more than others, and yet everybody enjoying heaven to the fullest. Let me try to explain it. First of all, 
you can enjoy heaven to the fullest, while some get more, some get less, because you are so full of love in heaven, and the presence of sin is so gone in heaven, that you can actually be able to enjoy it when other people get great things. I'm not sure how it works in your house, but what happens when everybody gets a slice of cake, but some get a little bit bigger slice than others. That's not fair. In heaven, that's not the case at all. In heaven, you're going to be so full of love. You're, you're, the presence of sin so completely gone. There's going to be no envying. There's going to be no coveting in heaven that you can actually celebrate and enjoy others getting more than you do. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says in this sermon. He says, quote, it will be no dampening to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them, for all shall be perfectly happy, everyone shall be perfectly satisfied, and there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. So when you get more rewards in heaven than I do, I'm going to rejoice in it and actually going to increase my joy. But Edward says, while there will all be enjoyment in heaven to the fullest, thoroughly enjoying heaven, 100%, however, there will be some, because of their greater rewards, who will enjoy it more fully. A, here's what I mean. A greater capacity for enjoying God in heaven. That's what Edward says, quote, every vessel that is cast into the ocean, this ocean of happiness is full, 100%, though there are some vessels far larger than others. So what's he saying? Meaning, if I have a Dixie cup of water, you know what a Dixie cup is, right? And you have a 50-gallon barrel of water. Both can be absolutely full. One has a much greater capacity. That's what he means. And beloved, the same is true with heaven. You and I will all experience the fullness of heaven's joy, but some, by storing up treasures, gaining heavenly rewards will have a greater capacity to enjoy those rewards for all of eternity. And Jesus is asking you this morning, what are you investing in then? Where are you going to invest your time? Where are you going to invest your energy? Where are you going to invest your resources, your money? Will it be in order to accumulate earthly treasures or will it be to accumulate heavenly treasures? And he wants you to pursue heavenly treasures for yourself so his point is that all of your saving and riches should be an investment in eternity. Not a little bit here on earth and a little bit here in heaven, but a complete reorienting of your life to invest in treasure that's going to last you for all of eternity. Storing up, laying up treasures in heaven. Let me close with the principle he draws in verse 21. And then we'll pick it up there next time. Look at verse 21. After giving us these two commands, right? One positive, one negative. Two reasons why we should obey them. He draws this principle. Look at verse 21. It begins with that word for. So he's drawing a conclusion, a principle here. What principle does he draw? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's he saying? If you want to see where your heart is, if you want to see what your heart is set on, if you want to see what your heart treasures, then just look at where your money goes. Look at the things you treasure. Are those earthly or heavenly things? Just think about your spending. If we were to take a look at how you spend your money, would it reveal 
a heart that treasures God and his glory and his kingdom? Or would it reveal a heart that treasures earthly things? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And those things that you accumulate, your treasures are what's going to govern your life. Those priorities are going to dictate what you pursue. So where's your treasure? Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, and I pray that your word would have its work in our hearts this morning. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see what's really true. Give us eyes to invest, to spend our lives in what ultimately matters for the glory of Christ and his kingdom, that you would be the greatest treasure of our hearts. Would you do that in your people this morning? May your word have its work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.